Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, or as we like to call it, The Amazing Fiona Show. And of course, in both cases, I'm referring to Cross-Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Podcast. As you know, we cover all things transfer pricing on the show, the technical and the interesting. And if you happen to be in the market for a topic that's both technical and interesting, well, you've come to the right place. Today, we're talking about how to handle service transactions, those back office jobs the parent companies and their entities, too, often outsource to other parts of the group. Service transactions are so complicated. I, I mean, interesting um, that we are going to chat about them over the course of two episodes instead of packing it all into one. What can we say? There's just a lot to talk about. Today, we'll get to service methodologies, and next week, we'll conquer the service cost method and what it means for the beat tax. What's that? We'll get to it. Patience, people. To keep the conversation flowing, we have two great guests with us today. Adam Sanford, Cross-Border Solutions Director of Transfer Pricing, is here. Incidentally, you may remember him from our podcast about transfer pricing in Argentina. And if you haven't listened to that one yet, um, what are you waiting for? Adam has years of experience handling complicated service transactions in complicated jurisdictions, and he's also an expert on the beat tax. We told you, it's coming. But Adam's not cross-border solutions, only expert with us today. Andre Anoyu is also here, the VP of Global Economic Operations. Andre spearheads transfer pricing procedures, technology, and of course, he's given his own stamp of approval on transfer pricing reports with all kinds of service transactions. So we're thrilled to have them both with us today. And um, cough, cough. I was going to get to you, Fiona, in case you were wondering, cross-border solutions, transfer pricing. AI Genius is also here, and she's going to chime in on a lot of rules about service transactions. As always, Fiona, glad to have you here. Glad to be here, Matt. Okay, so before we dive into those tricky transactions, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. perplexed about Qatar CBC reporting requirements, have no fear. We're about to clear things up. The country's General Tax Authority, or GTA, released a notice outlining a few key points on CBC submission. Like, for starters, who should submit one? Ultimate parent entities of multinational groups in Qatar who pulled in at least 3 billion Qatari rial in consolidated revenue the previous year should submit CBC reports. Okay, fine. We'll do the math. That's about $823,950. If you're an entity in Qatar with a parent entity elsewhere, lucky you, there's no need to submit. Of course, now that we've got that squared away, it begs an obvious question. When? And the answer is up to 12 months after the last day of the reporting fiscal year, the first starting on or after January 1st, 2018. By the way, you can file in English. Don't think you can swing it? Big mistake. Penalty fines climb as high as 500,000 Qatari Rial. Okay, fine. We'll take care of the numbers again. Here you go. That's roughly 137,325 U.S. dollars. Anything else we can do for you today? It's good news and bad news for anyone with transfer pricing transactions in Portugal. The OECD member still hasn't officially adopted BEPS Action 13's three-tiered approach to documentation. Suit yourself, I guess, Portugal. But recently, it has made three fundamental changes to its transfer pricing regime, thanks to Law 180-2019. 
The law was approved by Parliament on July 19th, goes into effect on October 1st, and shakes things up in terms of methodologies, penalties, and advanced pricing agreements, or as we lofty tax experts call them, APAs. When it comes to methodologies, the news is good. No longer do you have to adhere to Portugal's favorite methods, the comparable uncontrolled price, the resale price, or the cost plus method. In fact, not only can multinationals use all five OECD stamped transfer pricing methods, but they can also bring others to the table when typical methods fail atypical transactions. If that weren't exciting enough, that's right, we said exciting. The authorities have given APAs an extension. Now they can remain valid for four years instead of three, as it was before. The law's downside? More chance for penalties. Remember those fines for failing to submit documentation in CBC reports? Does 1,000 to 20,000 euros plus 5% everyday pass due ring any bells? Sorry, now they apply to CBC notifications as well. Still reeling from the UK's diverted profits tax, while the super steep tax launched back in 2015 with a main rate of 25%, yikes, and adjusted rates as high as 55%, double, yikes. Many multinational companies are still feeling the effects, so it, this seems like a good time to remind you of the snappily named Profit Diversion Compliance Facility that the HMRC rolled out in January. To put it simply, the facility lets multinationals dealing with the DPT, or related transfer pricing liabilities, come clean on their own terms. The benefits are worth it, an open and collaborative process, faster reviews, and fingers crossed, gentler penalties. Plus, you can manage the whole process and avoid an HMRC investigation, which is about as fun as a root canal without the anesthesia. Best of all, the experience is sure to make you less susceptible to profit diversion in the future. But the clock is ticking. If you think your company has a high risk of non-compliance, or perhaps you've received a nudge letter from the HMRC urging you to comply, get your paperwork in order. We would never judge you for being proactive in negotiating with the compliance facility. But if you did all that work, as in prepared a detailed report and proposal for the HMRC, and then simply missed the deadline, that's December 31st, 2019, everyone. Yeah, we'd shake our heads at that. And you know what? There probably are going to be some unapologetic eye rolling in there, too. Okay, I know you've all been very patient and we're not going to make you wait a second longer. Let's talk service transactions. Andre, take it away. All right. Thanks, Matt. So, Adam, let's, uh, let's start by learning a little bit more about you. So, in the Argentina podcast... I know you recently told us that when you first got into transfer pricing, you were living in Argentina. How do you think transfer pricing has changed or evolved since you've come into the industry? Thanks, Andre. The global landscape is always changing, and as more and more jurisdictions have aligned with OECD guidelines, while others have taken additional measures in TP documentation requirements. All right. So. What about if you were hiring a transfer pricing professional? Um, do you feel like it would be similar to the skills with the skill sets today that you'd look for in a professional be similar to those when you started out, or would they be different, and how? Uh, not that it wasn't important years ago, but more now than ever, critical thinking and the ability to provide insights to clients has become valuable when working with our key stakeholders. So what are some of the questions you're frequently asked by clients? So clients sometimes ask us about their service agreements and if we could carve out any of those low value added services and, and do different analyses for 
those low value added services and any high value added services because many times they're in the same agreements. Interesting. Oh, well, we'll talk a little bit about that. What would you say some of the biggest misconceptions are about service transfer pricing transactions specifically that MNEs have? Right. So, and I think we'll get into this a little bit more later as well. If the intercompany services being provided by their group are whitelisted, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about those low value added services going forward. Okay. Well, let's let's get started. Without further ado, let's let's just take it from the top, though. What is a service transaction, and specifically an intercompany service transaction? So these are transactions offered intercompany by, by one entity to another, and they could be back office support, which could include human resources, uh, also admin activities or admin services, uh, technical services, which are usually IT related, and also management services, uh, and that can include strategic management, finance, and also accounting services. Why would multinational corporations ever want to have these intercompany service transactions? Primarily to centralize the services in one location and maximize the efficiencies and minimize the cost. I'm sure as these companies create synergies, uh, they, they find those efficiencies. You wouldn't want two uh, different services providing accounting to the group which were in the same region when you can find those efficiencies and just provide one service and centralize those in one location. To that end, though, right, is, isn't it fair to say that the first thing you need to do is to prove that you're actually providing a benefit to your affiliates through these services? Correct. Tax authorities would want to know if there was a true benefit being provided, and they will potentially question the validity of the service in a benefit test analysis. So. What does that benefit test analysis look like, Adam? The service recipient has to be able to prove the economic value of the service they have received. Additionally, they have to prove that they would have been willing to pay an independent party for that same service. By going through this analysis and outlining where they would have been willing to pay for the services, what, what is the recipient of the transaction, and for that matter, the render of the transaction, what are they accomplishing? They would be able to show a tax authority that the services that they're engaged to provide or receive from their counterparty uh, are of value and they would be able to pay a similar price for a similar service to a third party um, out, in, out in the market. And, and essentially, by doing so, they're, they're able to justify that it, truly they should... Um, they should charge for that service, right? Because we hear all the time about different types of services that um, uh, that don't provide that direct benefit or, or what have you. Um, things like shareholder activities come to mind. What? Tell us a little bit about those. Sure. Those are services performed by a parent company or a regional holding company because of its ownership interest in one or more group members. And the cost is normally incurred by the parent company. So basically, shareholder activities don't really provide any benefit correct. to the recipient. Correct, correct. Group members don't require the activity, and they would not be willing to pay a third party for it by any means. And so what, what kinds of services fall into this shareholder activity category? 
These could be costs related to the admin structure of the parent company, like the meetings of the shareholders, the issuing of shares of the parent company, the stock exchange listing of the parent company, and even potentially the cost of the supervisory board. Okay. And and what about financial reporting? You know, putting together their annual reports or potentially even transfer pricing documentation at the group level, not necessarily uh, at the country level. Would would those be shareholder activities? Yes, yes. Those are those are costs related to compliance of the parent company and they they can include reporting requirements, uh, consolidation of reports, even their transfer pricing uh, tax documentation could be included as well. So it sounds like if we're looking at, if we're a multinational and we've got these shareholder activities, we're not going to pass the benefit test, then that means we shouldn't really charge for these services at all. Right, exactly. And those could be, some of those factors that could interfere in passing the benefits test could be duplicated services, uh, if the service already exists within the group. I mentioned earlier that if, if if it's already existed, most companies find those efficiencies and consolidate it into one. Um, but it could also refer to a service that the group is performing inside the group or with a third party. Interesting. So it's not only about the type of service, but then it's also about you know being duplicated elsewhere. Correct. And so are there, are there any uh, exemptions to this duplication rule? Only if the duplicated service is considered temporary. In what sense? For instance, if it was a service that wasn't going to last um, more than a couple months and you had an agreement in place that this was going to be a, a one-off, maybe it's an audit service from a related party and, and that's not something that was going to last year over year, uh, that could be considered temporary and then uh, maybe not considered duplicated. Okay, and what about uh, something like a second opinion from a legal advisor? If uh, you went out to a third party, but you had also gotten an opinion from your in-house counsel. Yeah, that would be okay. If a duplicated service is undertaken to reduce the risk of a wrong business decision, like a second legal opinion, it counts as an exception. You can still count it as an intergroup service. So there is some flexibility, it sounds like. There is some flexibility. Right. There's always flexibility in transfer pricing. Yeah, yeah, that's the beauty of it. So are there any other times where you wouldn't treat the service as a uh, applicable charge that you wouldn't want to, uh, to charge out for it? Absolutely. There's the case of incidental benefits. So tell us a little bit about that. When an intergroup service is performed for certain group members, but benefits other group members by chance. These incidental benefits would not cause these other group members to be treated as though they were receiving an intergroup service. Interesting. Okay, so more or less, if I'm providing a service to you as an affiliate, and then we have another affiliate that also benefits by that, well, clearly I can't charge them for the service I'm providing you. Correct, because them, them benefiting would only... It would have to be determined that they were only benefiting by chance. Right, right. Or indirectly. I think it's probably worth uh, noting, too, for our audience that, you know, all, all of this stuff we've been talking about with, with the benefits test and, and all this justification, it, it's not sufficient to um, simply think about it, right? Yeah, I'm assuming in your documentation, you want to, you, you need to actually mention it 
that you've thought about these things and that and, and justify the decisions you've made um, that lead to you being able to charge your affiliate for that service. Correct. And in all the documentation that we provide, it, when a service is part of the one of the transactions that we're covering, we do do the service benefits test, and that's clearly defined for any audience that chooses to read the report. Indeed, and I'm going to interrupt here for a minute with our first CPE code word, and that word is centralize, as in if you centralize intergroup services, it saves a lot of money. All right, thanks, Matt. So, Adam, once once you go through this this benefits test and you've validated that your uh, your intercompany transaction meets all these criteria, and in fact you you can uh, charge for it legitimately, what do you do next? Well, next we would have to determine that the price of the service is in accordance with the arm's length principle. You would want to make sure that the intergroup charges are the same as they would be if they were between independent parties. And additionally, if the service provider renders similar services to both independent and related parties, that would be extremely helpful for the, the firm documenting your, your services. And if I could interrupt just very quickly for the folks at home, Fiona, which types of transfer pricing methods can you use to prove service transactions are arm's length? You can use transactional methods profit-based methods for services, the services cost method, and the OECD simplified approach for intracompany services. For unique transactions, you can also apply other methods if the selected method is the best method. Thank you, Fiona. So, Adam, given, given all these methods exist, which one's the most direct? The most direct would be the transactional analysis. Okay, and, and I, you kind of alluded to it, right, if you provide the same service to a third party as you do to an affiliate, you could potentially use that transactional analysis. What, what does that look like in a service transaction? The transactional analysis will compare the controlled transactions to uncontrolled transactions. So one would have to be able to identify situations where the service provider also provides similar types of services to third parties. Normally we have agreements to, to analyze when covering these types of transactions. And Fiona, if I can ask once more, what are the transactional service methods? There's the Comparable Uncontrolled Service Price Method, or CUSP. There's the Gross Services Margin Method, or the GSMM. And then there's the Cost Service Plus Method, or the CSP. Oh, very interesting, Fiona. So, Adam, let's talk a little bit about these transactional service methods. What is the Comparable Uncontrolled Service Price Method, or CUSP as we tend to abbreviate it. Right, the CUSP, the Comparable Uncontrolled Services Price Method. So let's say for legal services you would pay $100 for an hour to controlled parties and uncontrolled parties. We could use that $100 an hour and attempt to benchmark that across different observations that we would search for. And what about the Gross Service Margin Method or GSMM? The GSMM compares controlled and uncontrolled transactions by their profit margin. And so similarly, rather than using a, an hourly rate, if you will, for in your legal service example, it sounds like here we would use some sort of gross margin percentage as the comparison. Correct. We could take the gross margin percentage of our tested party and also when we identify similar observations out in the market, we could 
calculate their gross margin as well and build a benchmark. All right, and, and what about the cost of cost of service plus method? Well, this method compares the gross service profit markup between controlled and uncontrolled transactions. The markup is measured by the percentage of profit markup. So very similar to the gross margin. In some ways, very similar. Uh, in, in this case, we're only taking the profit markup, whereas on the other one, we were taking the, the profit margin. All right. So, you know, all of these sound like a very reasonable way to determine your arm's length pricing. But we don't see them too often. So what are some of the challenges in using transaction-based analyses? Well, Andre, true comparables are hard to find. Uh, a lot of times we have to go with, with best available, but comparing apples to apples does prove to be difficult when searching for comparables. And, and so why is that? Why are, why are transactional analysis comparables so hard to find? So let's take a law firm, for, for instance. A law firm provides legal services to many customers, but data from their contracts is not readily available. It's not public knowledge. From a transfer pricing perspective, we would need to identify specific transactions that are observed in the market, and we can't rely on the going rate, let's say. Mm. Additionally, we have to identify true uncontrolled transactions, which does prove to be a challenge, uh, but a challenge that we are up to day in and day out. So it's very interesting that you mentioned the going rate. So I think what you're saying is, you know, if, if a law firm has a bill rate of $100 an hour, you can't necessarily just go by that bill rate, can you? You have to actually show an invoice of $100 an hour because chances are they might discount it, they might charge you more depending on the, the complexity of the work and the situation at hand. Correct, correct. So I think first we would need to look at what were those legal services provided. One could be for a merger and acquisition, uh, some, some legal advice that they got, and another could be for a, an audit that they have and they, they need legal advice for that. So just because we have these two different situations and they were charged the same, that doesn't mean that they're exactly comparable. Now that being said, if we don't have any other observations available to us, we might have to use it, but we need to search out in the marketplace first. And so these, these comparability factors um, are super important, especially with transactional methods. We've, we've learned about transactional methods in past um, episodes, so um, we know just how strict they, they are. Um, is there anything you can do if you, if you don't have, I'll call them perfect comparables? You can adjust the results um, depending on on what services were aware, depending on what services were covering, and the the similarity of the comps that we found. We can potentially adjust their profitability to bring them closer to the tested party. And I'm just going to interrupt here for a quick minute with our second CPE code word, and that word is microphone. As in our favorite podcast guests speak clearly into the microphone. Hint, hint, you guys. Anyway, back to you, Andre. All right. Thanks, Matt. I'll see what I can do to, <laughs> to speak more clearly. Uh, so, Adam, what, what happens next, right? Let's say that you can't confidently apply a transactional analysis. Either you can't find any comparables whatsoever or the comparables that you find just truly don't meet that, that uh, comparability standard, what do you do next? We would potentially then consider a profit-based analysis where the most common type is where we're 
looking into the profits of each individual comp that we locate. Okay. And so, so what does that look like? And just as a recap for, for listeners um, from when we covered profit-based analyses in more, uh, more broad terms. Sure. Well, first, we would establish a search for comparable companies engaged in the same type of services for benchmarking. Because most jurisdictions want to transfer pricing analysis to construct an interquartile range, we would need at least four comparables. We like to have more than that so that our analysis end up being more robust, but four you would need to, to calculate that range. And so what, what are the profit-based methods uh, called for service transactions? The comparable profits method, which is used in the U.S. and Taiwan, which compares the profits between related and unrelated parties. And additionally, and, and also similarly, the TNMM, which is the OECD equivalent, which is the transactional net margin method, compares net margins between controlled and uncontrolled transactions. Okay. And so, Adam, that, that's a good point, right? So with these, with these profit-based analyses, you're, you're looking at the profitability, and what you're, com- what you're trying to test is really the markup on, on the cost of the service that, that leads to that profit margin. What about the cost base itself? Can you speak a little bit to that? Right. So many times if, if we're studying, if we're testing a transaction that's worth $80,000, we might not want to compare that to a transaction or, or a company that generates billions of dollars a year. Uh, there, when we're looking for, when we're attempting to identify similar companies, we want to make sure that they're similar in every possible way. And one of those ways is their income, uh, the size of their transactions, the size of their operations. Uh, so that that does have a, a play in it as well. And what about, you know, as a multinational, if I'm looking to charge my affiliate for a service that, that, I'm, uh, that I'm doing for them that's benefiting them and I've validated all that, how do I figure out how much to actually charge them just as far as my cost goes? I know that I'm going to have to do a CPM or a TNMM to figure out what markup to charge on top of that cost. But what about the cost itself? What's, what are some of the ways that we can determine that? So in many times we can use allocations to, to look for recuperating that cost. And some companies go based on, on the amount of revenue. Some companies go on the, based on the amount of headcount. I've seen, for instance, a, a European group uh, allocate their cost out and, and depending on who utilized their services the most, that's how they allocated the cost. But there are many different ways to do this across a group of companies uh, in, a, in a just way and it's not, uh, it doesn't, it's not difficult for us to benchmark that and, and document that in our transaction, in our and, analyses. And I would say it, it depends on the function itself, doesn't it? Because to your point, whether it's revenue or whether it's, you know, if you're, if you're allocating out IT charges, you might even look at, you know, how many workstations, how many laptops, or in each location, and you can allocate based on that. Or, or potentially how many clicks they receive in, do, in that local yeah, jurisdiction. Or support so, tickets right. or what have you. So there's a lot of different drivers that, that you can use. Right, exactly. The key, of course, being, like you said, right, you have to justify that it's a, it's a fair way of, of charging out for that service. 
Let's talk a little bit about these profit-based methods. They are the most common. What are some of the reasons for that? Well, they're most often used in practice because data is available and the profitability of similarly natured services where the product comparability is less strict than the unit price comparison analyses. What we're primarily looking at is what the margins would be on such services. And what about with multinationals where they perform more than one service transaction or more than one type of service transaction? Most companies are engaged in more than one activity. You can evaluate several types of service transactions all at once, not only on a case-by-case -case basis. For example, a lot can be bucketed under management services. General types of shared services transactions include management services, accounting, payroll, tax support, and IT-related services. Our, our clients, depending on how they want to, to document these, they can bucket all of these together or carve them out. And we'll talk a little bit about that later in terms of the, the, the whitelisted services. Yeah, so actually that, that's a good segue, right? Like, um, what are some of the other methods that, that can be used um, for service transactions? Because we know that, that there are times uh, and you alluded to this earlier, right? If, if you have a low value added services service, you don't necessarily need to go you know, A to Z in terms of analyzing it. But what do those methods look like? Uh, well, the, the, the most common one would be the services cost method. Which is an IRS specific method. Correct, correct. This was introduced by the IRS in 2007. It has no specific regulations about the treatment of services and it's intended to minimize the compliance burden of common intercompany services that warrant low markups, uh, like we mentioned before. So it might be the accounting, the payroll, the, the admin services. This allows taxpayers to compare cost without comparing profit. And so does the IRS allow you to use it for any type of service? No, it can't be applied for any type of service. There are specific services the IRS listed as acceptable for this type of method. Most of those services will be considered low-value-added services. There's extensive documentation listing out these services, and if you fall into one of those buckets, you can consider yourself for the, the SCM, or the services cost method. If it's a high-value-added service, and you can imagine strategic management, research and development, you will not be eligible for the SEM. Okay, so this is interesting, and I just want to sum up a bit of what we've talked about today so everybody's ready for part two. Look for it next week. Companies use intra-company service transactions to minimize costs and maximize efficiency. No-brainer, right? And we can analyze service transactions through straightforward transactional service methods. The only problem is comparables and public information can be hard to find. So we turn to profit-based analyses, which is the most common type of analysis for service transactions and then what's this the IRS trying to make things easier by introducing a method which simplifies things and lets you compare only the costs well under certain conditions anyway stay tuned next week when we dive into the service cost method in more depth and reveal specifically what those conditions are in the meantime thanks for being here Adam and Andre this was super informative of course with transfer pricing there is always more to know and we can help with that subscribe 
to The Fiona Show on iTunes or Spotify and will help cut through the transfer pricing weeds every week. And while you're at it, check out our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, where we'll clue you into transfer pricing headlines from all over the globe. This podcast was edited, engineered, and hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our script writer and executive producer. That's about all the time we have on service transactions, at least for today. But of course, we can always be convinced to talk more. Any takers? No? Nobody? Okay, then. Signing off until next week, when we'll be back with more about the service cost method. And spoiler alert, how again, under certain conditions, it can help you get around the beat tax. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.